Welcome to I'm Jay On Air, podcast of the Internal Medicine Journal. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Today's episode shows off some Australian research from the January edition of the journal. The study looked at outcomes of patients hospitalised for COVID-19, who also had underlying diabetes or hyperglycemia. Even if you're not an endocrinologist or a respiratory physician, I think this story presents an important message about population research, in particular how you go about untangling the confounds introduced by comorbidity, healthcare setting and interventions. So starting in 2020, a handful of studies from the USA, France, Italy, Belgium and China had consistently shown increased risk of adverse outcomes of COVID-19 in patients with diabetes. Odds ratios for mortality conferred by pre-existing diabetes ranged from 1.5 to 3.6. Well, 5% of the Australian population is known to have diabetes, but among inpatients at Melbourne's hospitals, that figure is more like 35%. And in 2020, there were over 20,300 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Victoria, representing 72% of all Australia's caseload. This presented researchers in Melbourne an opportunity to retrospectively examine the importance of the risk relationship in an Australian setting, and hopefully to provide insights into protective factors too. This resulted in a large collaboration called Diabetes in Hospital, Glucose and Outcomes in the COVID-19 Pandemic. To guide this journal club, I had the IMJ Endocrinology Editor, Associate Professor John Wentworth. Yeah, look, I, I work at Royal Melbourne and at the adjoining Morton Eliza Hall Institute, and uh, I, I work in general endocrinology, but the research interest is in type 1 diabetes immunology and screening and prevention of the disease with immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. And you had the pleasure of reviewing this paper about the Dingo COVID-19 study. The lead author is Rahul Barmanarai, an endocrinologist at Royal Melbourne Hospital and lecturer at Uni of Melbourne. Rahul, how long were you sitting in front of the Scrabble board before you came up with the study title with a catchy acronym? <laughs> yeah, we do like our, uh, our abbreviations in, uh, in clinical research. Do, is there anything else you want to add about your, your CV? Uh, not at all, um, except that uh, I had the pleasure of working both at Royal Melbourne and, and Western, so uh, two of the sites hardest hit by COVID. And from, the, from your 20 co-authors on this study, we also have with us Dev Kivat and Ashraf Islam. Can you both introduce yourselves briefly before John hits you with his first questions? Certainly, yeah. My name's Dev. I'm the lead for diabetes at Western Health, and it's been you know, a pleasure to contribute. We, we fortunately or unfortunately had a large number of people to contribute to this very interesting study. Yeah, I'm Ashraf currently working as an um, advanced trainee in Golden Valley Health Shepparton. But uh, during this study, I was doing my master's uh, thesis with uh, Professor Elephantcy in Austin Health. Uh, so I had I have got the opportunity to collect the data for uh, this collaboration. Yeah, well, look, um, terrific to have you all here today. Thanks for joining us. Um, I wanted to start, I guess, by acknowledging that we're speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and uh, well, at least I am, and, and uh, others of us may be elsewhere, but I did want to acknowledge that to start. Now, this was an unusual study in that it, it got a lot of different sites working together. I, I wonder if uh, you could tell us you know, how it all came together. Uh, thanks, John. Perhaps um, I'll start with a, a brief summary of the inception of this study. Uh, so... As endocrinologists, we're familiar with working in the inpatient and outpatient space, 
And we're increasingly cognizant of the fact that inpatient diabetes is a greater proportion of those individuals admitted to hospital, uh, as well as having significant implications for morbidity and mortality in hospital. Um, this has been known about for at least the last two decades, and, and the field is really maturing. Uh, so, of course, when COVID-19 came along and these initial studies uh, from elsewhere in the world were showing that uh, diabetes and indeed high blood glucose in hospital inpatients with COVID was associated with increased morbidity and mortality, well, uh, it was really incumbent upon us as inpatient diabetologists to see if that was the case in, in our, our local context as well. Um, and so the study aimed to give clinicians much more information um, about the implications for COVID-19, its treatments, uh, and any other uh, sort of surrounding issues regarding comorbidities um, on their patient's diabetes, uh, hyperglycemia, and eventual outcomes. Uh, at a time when, um, if you remember back, we really didn't know all that much about COVID-19 and, and what implications it had acutely or even chronically. Thanks, Rahul. Yeah, if I could just build on what Rahul said, it's Dev here. Now, I think, um, John, your question about working together is a really important one. You know, we work all in different health systems and as we all have experienced and many of the listeners will experience, there's some fractures in record keeping between different hospitals, particularly in some states. And, you know, it was really wonderful to be able to work with clinicians across all of the sites across northern um, and western Melbourne to contribute data. And you know, I think that was due to the personal connections uh, and the supervisor connections that we all had. I think that obviously gave us numbers in a way that would be otherwise very hard to do. And that gave the study some power and validity and the ability to really explore things in some depth. Great. And Rahul, what did, essentially, what did the study show in a nutshell? Yeah, um, in a nutshell, the results were somewhat surprising <laughs> in light of those international uh, associations that were found in the early part of the pandemic. And perhaps we'll talk about the reasons for that somewhat later. But uh, essentially, in our Victorian cohort in 2020, in the first two waves of the COVID-19 pandemic, in patients with COVID with diabetes and hyperglycemia were no more likely to have adverse outcomes than those without diabetes or without hyperglycemia, uh, particularly for mortality. Um, now, ICU length of stay was, was slightly longer for those with hyperglycemia, and there was some biasing by indication um, based on therapy. But uh, unlike international experiences, uh, diabetes, at least in our cohort, uh, was not independently associated with increased mortality. And that's obviously a fairly hard outcome. And can you just give me a sense as to what the odds ratio of death um, with diabetes as, as a risk factor was and how well powered your study uh, was to identify a similar effect? You might need to remind us how many um, patients were included. So we had 840 admissions that met our inclusion criteria. Uh, there were a few more people admitted with COVID-19 um, during that period uh, around Victoria, but uh, some of those people were admitted with other issues and happened to incidentally have COVID. So we really included those people who were admitted for COVID, uh, who needed inpatient treatment um, of their COVID-19. Uh, and, and we found that the multivariate adjusted uh, odds ratio for diabetes for in-hospital mortality was 1.3, um, but the confidence interval uh, very much crossed one, so there was uh, no association there. Um, and so with almost all of the inpatient admissions uh, with COVID-19 um, for that period, um, and we have, a, we have a figure that sort of shows our uh, the patients admitted in our study um, compared with the uh, case rate in the community in Victoria, and the, the two overlap quite well. Uh, so we can be pretty confident that we're reflecting the, the true relationship <laughs> and the true um, incidence of COVID-19 in the community. 
Um, and so the fact that we have most of those patients, purely by dint of uh, our hospitals being around the epicenter of the Victorian COVID-19 epidemic, which uh, many will, many people remember, particularly in the second wave, was that inner north west of Melbourne, um, and then spreading out into the western and northern suburbs from there. And so, I mean, so what expect size might you have thought you might see? And, you know, did you have enough numbers to assure yourselves that you indeed could be confident that there wasn't an increased risk? So the the effect seen in other studies, uh, the odds ratio with uh, diabetes and mortality has, has ranged between sort of 1.5 up to 3.6 um, with market variability between uh, location. So some studies, particularly in, in China around the epicenter of the pandemic, showed uh, relatively low uh, odds ratios but had um, much higher numbers. Um, and other place, other uh, experiences, um, for example, the Italian and Spanish um, experiences, showed much higher um, odds ratios of mortality. Um, so those were the effect sizes we were expecting. We saw a lower effect size, um, uh, around 1.3. Um, but given our numbers, uh, 800, uh, and half of whom had either diabetes or hyperglycemia, well, we expect to have been adequately powered to have detected a, a true difference if there was one. Great. Now, um, obviously, you know, the definition of diabetes was, um, was uh, I, I guess, not an exact science in this study. And I'd like to bring Dev and Ashraf in to really see if they could comment on whether um, there might have been population differences across the different health services. I know, for instance, that Royal Melbourne um, does a lot of its diabetes through remote um, glucose monitoring uh, that gets reviewed centrally and similar systems aren't yet established or I don't think were established uh, in other places. But I, I wonder if you could comment, um, were we all looking at the same sorts of patients at these different hospitals? Were there um, differences between hospitals, uh, either um, anecdotally or, or even scientifically? Dev, do you have a comment? Yeah, John, I think that's a really excellent question. And, and one of the things we always have to be concerned about when we're collaborating across sites is getting the definitions right um, um, and correctly applied across all the sites. And we spent quite a lot of time doing that in terms of the search criteria. I think you're correct to say that the way in terms of finding the glucose results may have varied a bit from site to site. But in terms of the actual numbers, I think there was, uh, you know, good consistency between the different sites. So at Western Health, we didn't have uh, the same, necessarily the same sorts of systems at other sites. So we did a lot of manual reviews, um, uh, but we had a team of people working hard sort of around the clock to gather the hundreds and look through those charts. Although the information isn't automated, we do get glucose metric readings sort of down to the, you know, point, uh, you know, one decimal place. So... We're pretty confident because our search strategy originally involved looking at all the patients who had a COVID positive diagnosis as defined at the time and then manually searching those records. And we had a pretty comprehensive uh, way to look at that. And we also had a cross-check mechanism to check our own accuracy at our own site. Um, so that was our approach at Western. Thanks. And Ashraf, um, at Austin Health, which is in the um, in, in the northeast of Melbourne, they, I know that there's a, an HbA1c that at least was um, routinely done for anyone who set foot in the hospital as a screening mechanism. Um, was it still in place? Uh, and again, was your ascertainment similar in approach or, or how did you go about finding the patients with diabetes out there? Yeah, so um, I have searched the data 
according to the diagnosis of COVID at that time. And um, um, all the patients admitted in this uh, in the Austin Health who has um, age more than 45 had got this HbA1c. So I have uh, checked all uh, the HbA1c manually, and I also checked all the blood glucose uh, has done on the patients who admitted for with the diagnosis of COVID. From there, I have curated more than 100 data for this study, and um, we we use the red cap. So Rahul has come up with an uh, uh, form that uh, what are the data he wanted to know. So um, we entered all those data according to that. Great. And tell me, um, you know, you've, you've had a look across um, three categories of people, those who didn't have diabetes or any high glucoses in hospital, those who came in with a pre-existing diagnosis of diabetes or those who showed, um, I guess, stress, hyperglycemia, um, in response to uh, critical illness, probably um, caused by COVID. Uh, and, um, you know, you didn't find increased mortality after correcting for a number of, uh, of, of common and expected factors. So why was that when, um, you know, there was clearly an effect um, only a matter of six months sort of previously observed uh, in other studies? Why, why was there no mortality um, risk associated with type 2 or, or type 1 diabetes? Yeah, I think it really, really cuts to the heart of the matter, John. Um, and it really reflects the, the rapidly changing nature of COVID, particularly in that first year, even now. Uh, and in this particular case, it really comes down to the use of dexamethasone as standard of care in uh, patients with hypoxia. It just so happened that the recovery trial, um, the large trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which really established dexamethasone as standard of care uh, in those patients with COVID-19 admitted who experienced hypoxia, uh, that the preprint publication of that occurred around the same time as the, the second wave in Victoria was ramping up. Um, and so Victoria is really the, the first place in Australia that had significant numbers of COVID-19 where people were being treated with dexamethasone. Dexamethasone, as many listeners will know, of course, causes hyperglycemia um, and associated with the stress hyperglycemia of the inflammation <laughs> with COVID-19, many, many patients were receiving uh, often very high doses of insulin um, in order to maintain their glycemia. Certainly that was the Royal Melbourne experience. And I believe there's a, there's a case series from Sydney showing a, a similar experience. Uh, and so the fact that these people who were developing hyperglycemia, much of which was, as you say, John, stress hyperglycemia, because of their dexamethasone and because of their COVID-19, but dexamethasone is a mortality reducing therapy. Uh, we're certain that after our multivariate adjustment, there is going to be some uh, confounding relationship between dexamethasone, hyperglycemia, and in-hospital mortality, where it's hyper hyperglycemia itself no longer comes out as increasing mortality uh, because dexamethasone is reducing the mortality in those patients who are biased by indication to receive it because those are the sickest patients who would have had the highest mortality had they not received dexamethasone in the first place. But what about the people who definitely had diabetes before they turned up to hospital, you, you had a fair cohort of those, didn't you? Or are you less less certain that they truly had type two diabetes before they came in? I thought um, half of the diabetes cohort or hyperglycemia cohort were people with a pre-existing or, or fairly good case for a pre-existing diagnosis of type two diabetes. 
That's right. So 300 patients had diabetes, about 100 patients had hyperglycemia without diabetes, and the remaining 400 um, had no diabetes and didn't experience hyperglycemia in hospital. And so those 300 patients with diabetes, some of them experienced hyperglycemia, but some didn't. Um, and in fact, some of the people with a pre-existing diagnosis of diabetes received dexamethasone and didn't become hyperglycemic, which is consistent with a non-COVID experience. Um, and so when we were able to look at each of those risk factors and the outcomes independently, uh, that was when we saw there wasn't an association. But what you're saying essentially is that dexamethasone is such an effective treatment that mortality is really, really low um, and therefore the risk of diabetes is is mitigated. It's, it's, somewhat, um, it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive to me at least. Um, and I'm just wondering what other factors might be out there to explain what is quite an unusual um, finding in the context of, of the world liter literature. I, I presume we were dealing with similar types of COVID. We, we were dealing with Delta. I, I guess some of the previous papers may have also been dealing with other strains, and so maybe that's a difference. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe the people with diabetes in this study were not very similar to those in the rest of the world. I don't know if you could comment on that at all. Yeah, um, uh, one of the key differences between uh, the Victorian COVID-19 2020 experience uh, was the demographics of people who got COVID. Um, so uh, those in Victoria will remember that our first wave was really returned travellers, uh, a, a few people had, who'd um, contracted it on cruise ships uh, returning to Victoria, but tended to be quite young um, international travellers who've returned. Uh, or backpackers who were on their way back um, overseas. Whereas the second wave was very much a, a nursing home predominant um, disease. There were obviously many school-based outbreaks, um, but younger people tended not to get as unwell. The people who ended up in hospital tended to be uh, older and more comorbid. And so therefore, uh, diabetes in uh, the elderly, uh, people who are nursing home residents, is probably um, a, a different condition on average um, to, say, a, a general working-aged population, as tended to be the people who got COVID in uh, some of the international cohorts, particularly in China and Spain. Uh, and so that probably explains um, much of the difference and, and really is one of the key points of this paper, that uh, the contextual relationship in which uh, a particular association is being studied is key uh, and can really change the outcomes that we see. And so we wouldn't have known these results had we not performed this study in our context and we would have perhaps tried to extrapolate some of the international experience to the Victorian experience. But as our study shows, maybe that wouldn't have been appropriate. You know, what is this sort of meaning for us as we move forward? And I guess I might first step back and, and ask you to comment. I mean, the previous knowledge that diabetes was a risk factor for COVID-19, could you comment on how that might have been altering or affecting clinician behaviour or, or patient behaviour uh, and, and, you know, how this new information might alter any um, aspects of, of clinical care? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's difficult to be 100% sure, but one thing that has crossed my mind is we did get a bit more warning um, compared to maybe some places in the world of what the mortality and the conditions which exacerbated mortality were um, with COVID-19 being in Australia because the borders closed and our waves were there for a little bit later. And it does, did cross my mind, did that mean that we had a heightened awareness of diabetes um, and um, and the need to pay extra vigilance to to these patients. I think Rahul makes a very good point that what this study is actually is showing is that in that context there were other factors which brought greater risk in a proportionate sense. So, for example, age and other 
sorts of comorbidities were were certainly an, an issue which ra- raised that. I mean, I do think that um, certainly in my hospital, our ability to make decisions about um, looking after people with diabetes was was increased. We were more proactive with that. And, you know, I think that second factor is really that hypoglycemia because of the dexamethasone and um, and that sort of that treatment effect was there. Very, it was very great. So I guess looking forward to the future, you know, I think this study was very valuable in it sort of tested um, and, you know, like, like good science, if you're testing, sometimes you find things which are surprising and that certainly provoked a lot of thought uh, in us going forward about how we might approach things in the future. And was there good evidence that the mortality rates in Victoria were far lower than those reported in the other studies? Once you, say, account for the age, the, the increased age of the population in Victoria and, and, and other um, cofactors? Well, I think, um, I think it's very difficult to necessarily compare across jurisdictions um, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, speaking to, to people and colleagues who I've worked with in the UK and uh, the NHS, and I'm not sure if their data is, is published yet, I don't think we had quite the case mortality rates um, with, with a, that sort of match population. What's particularly difficult um, in comparing different jurisdictions is, of course, the, um, you know, we had a, a relatively high testing regime um, in in Australia compared to some other countries, not so much now, but certainly back then. But uh, yeah, I might get Rahul or Ashraf to comment o- on that. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, Dave uh, because um, when we are looking into the data of the Austin, I can see that um, you know, we we are the we have got an uh, uh, warning shot that uh, the wave is coming and um, and that this uh, surveillance uh, uh, on diabetes was increased and um, uh, I've gone through the, all the, the medical records for the patients with diabetes. Uh, every patient was reviewed by the endocrinology register um, and um, the treatment was um, according to the patient's need. So I think uh, it was an, um, a contributing factor uh, to deal this situation promptly. And can I go back to those preceding international studies? And maybe it's a naive question. In those international cohorts, is it likely that diabetes was bringing a specific, you know, sort of metabolic risk to COVID-19 patients or that there's a sort of indirect association of patients who are more overweight, respiratory and cardiovascular difficulties and fatigue that were then... Put, put under pressure during their COVID experience? Yeah, um, I think it's it's probably two things. Um, one aspect of it, as we've mentioned previously, is that diabetes seemed to associate with a particular type of patient in a particular cohort. As we mentioned before, elderly nursing home patients where, where diabetes may reflect sort of age-related um, pancreatic dysfunction more so than, uh, say, metabolic uh, or inflammatory uh, determinants of diabetes, whereas in, in some of those international cohorts, um, particularly the uh, the younger working age uh, and often predominantly uh, male workers um, who will work in close proximity, you know, abattoir workers was the classic one in Australia, but in, say, um, uh, Spain, uh, greenhouse workers where COVID would spread amongst these populations, uh, that those people where diabetes was present, there probably truly was um, a, a difference in their metabolic risk. Diabetes in those individuals who are younger uh, would truly have likely had greater weight um, and, and the diabetes would have probably represented something different to what it represented in our cohort. 
I think from an inpatient perspective, uh, what we what we know from literature is that both hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia um, increase morbidity and mortality post-discharge, hypoglycemia more so than hyper, but so does diabetes, and diabetes probably more so. Um, and so we know from uh, large systematic reviews of patients admitted uh, without COVID, but with community-acquired pneumonia um, before COVID, uh, that people with diabetes were more likely to die greater than 90 days post-discharge. Post and that probably had nothing to do with their admission. It was probably the fact that they have diabetes, and diabetes, unfortunately, um, is, a, is a risk factor for death through various mechanisms. And if you develop community-acquired pneumonia, then you're probably a, you know, an older, more vulnerable um, person. But of course, um, when people are admitted with COVID, uh, particularly if they're intubated, um, then there is significant uh, inflammation that occurs and just the recovery from that illness, uh, you know, ICU-related debility uh, means that many of these individuals will, um, will experience morbidity for, for some time. Um, and so, again, <laughs> the context is really important. Um, and in a, in a younger population, you expect individuals to do better. But then in a surge setting where a healthcare service is overwhelmed um, and the care and attention to risk factors like diabetes and hyperglycemia uh, can't be given, um, then, of course, mortality rates will be higher. Um, but in Victoria, we were never in a, in a surge uh, overwhelmed setting. Um, I think the nature of the pandemic and the nature of the alert was often called, you know, code black and, and code red and so on. I mean, it was it was certainly serious, but our health service was never overwhelmed. Um, you know, hospitals were never turning people away uh, with or without COVID. I'm sure elective surgery was cancelled, but urgent surgery never was. Um, and I think that differs uh, certainly markedly from the early European experience and, and probably explains some of these differences. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. I mean, although we felt we were in a crisis, I don't think it compared to anything like um, our Northern Hemisphere um, colleagues experienced. Um, looking ahead, we, we've got lots of COVID now and there, there's talk of another wave about to wash over us. Um, would, would any of you like to comment on the, 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 what COVID looks like right now in, in the tertiary hospital and... Um, and what potentially the learnings from this study could, um, how they could be applied to, to help manage people as they come through the hospital doors. I mean, for a start, how many, um, how many dedicated COVID wards do we have in the various hospitals now? And how many ICU beds, what proportion of ICU beds are taken up by COVID? Would anyone like to comment on that? I, mean, I think that that certainly at Western, you know, changes on a, a week by week basis. So I was doing around today and uh, in the ICU, I think probably about 20% of the patients had COVID or COVID was a significant factor. Most of those patients were unvaccinated. Um, and so, you know, for, for my mind, I think what this paper adds and going forward is sort of a multidimensional notion of risk as a clinician as we walk around. Um, COVID diabetes, uh, obesity, age are all factors. Um, and it may be that we don't hang our hat so much on one particular um, comorbid condition as much as we were maybe shaping up to do uh, a year or two ago. And that we, in our mind, think particularly of how that conglomerate of risk might put a patient at higher risk. And unfortunately, we do still uh, certainly at my hospital have a number of people who are not vaccinated or dare or even if they are vaccinated have not got booster shots and for my mind particularly with my pregnant patients who have diabetes that's you know something we're always encouraging to to do so so i think you know obviously we've the mass vaccination of the population has decreased the amount of 
a severe illness, but there are still going to be pockets of illness. And with the condition being so prevalent, we're still going to have a, a significant component, at least in the adult population, of patients where COVID is playing a factor um, in their in their admissions. Um, I think it's difficult because obviously the social aspects and the politics of COVID have really changed and there's a strong push on to, to normalise COVID. But the numbers are so great that we will continue to obviously have a number of patients who we need to manage with this condition, particularly if they've got multiple comorbidities. Certainly at the Royal Melbourne, uh, we can recall in 2021 when there'd be three, four, five COVID-dedicated wards um, at any one time. And now, really, for the majority of this year, there's been at most one, up to one ICU pod um, dedicated to COVID-19. So the face has very much changed from an in-hospital disease to one that's managed, for example, in the hospital in the home setting. Um, I happen to work in the, the Royal Melbourne Hospital in the home, so we get a lot of uh, COVID patients that, that come under us. But many patients have been incidentally uh, diagnosed with covid They've come in for an entirely unrelated issue. They've had a nasopharyngeal swab and it, COVID has been detected and they haven't necessarily needed any specific management for that. But, of course, because they've got COVID, then we need to manage them as such so we don't infect others unnecessarily. Uh, and so for those of us who were working last year and the year before, we've very much seen the face change. Uh, but we're familiar with how quickly things can change with the advent of new um, uh, new variants, so for example, the Omicron variant last year, and uh, that significantly changed <laughs> the way in which um, people were being infected and uh, the number of people who were who were being infected and requiring hospitalisation. And so we're uh, cautiously hopeful that such things don't happen, but well aware that that could happen again. And and again, the the panoply of risk factors and their interplay with outcomes could again change. And, and these study results uh, themselves specifically may become redundant, but should very much encourage us all to be continuously looking for what are the risk factors that have put our patients at higher risk so that we can mitigate against those um, and so that we can treat them. And Ashraf, you're, um, I believe, up in Shepparton, um, which has just recovered from devastating floods. Um, uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the lay of the land up there in terms of hospital admissions and how much of a factor COVID is? Um, I want to add that uh, I have just got an email from our CEO that uh, they have ad- activated code YOLO because um, our capacity of COVID ward is 25 bed. Um, and uh, all the beds are filled up now. So we are uh, in, in the middle of another wave. But um, uh, uh, from the experience from the last three years and all the uh, treatment facilities we have got now, and then all the information we get, uh, get from these studies, I think uh, we can manage those patients more uh, effectively. Thank you. And, and look, a completely different question. Um, you know, this cohort, at least in theory, would provide an opportunity to see down the track, um, you know, in years to come. And I guess um, looking forward, if you had the um, the constitution to go through the process to get permission to, to follow these people up and to see how they fared, would you like to make some sort of guesses or comments as to how the different cohorts in your study might be in five years' time? We're comparing people without diabetes who came through in that um, second wave and, and I guess a bit in the first wave to um, those who had diabetes and those who had hyperglycemia. Would, would any of you like to comment on that? Absolutely. Um, perhaps Deb might like, to, uh, might like to answer first. Yeah, look, um, I think 
it will be very interesting to see uh, what we know about the biology of COVID does include knowledge about effects on the pancreas directly. Um, I, I do think there'll be such a thing as taking a history and understanding whether people had COVID sick enough to get them into hospital. Um, and, you know, I, we talk about post-transplant diabetes. You know, I wonder if there'll be such a thing as post-COVID diabetes, particularly for the people who are sick enough to be in intensive care or, or, or unwell. And so I think comparative cohort studies will certainly show a difference between those two things. I think it's a separate question as to whether there'll be a mortality difference between people who had pre-existing diabetes, whether their diabetes indeed is accelerated by such a condition as COVID. And uh, I don't really know the answer to that, but it's certainly something we all need to continue to work at. And I wonder if in the future we consider COVID-19 as something akin to gestational diabetes, which might sound like a, an odd <laughs> metaphor to draw uh, from, first, uh, from first glance. But in the same way that in gestational diabetes, it's, uh, I believe it's placental lactogen that increases insulin resistance. And so that, that particular stress test, if, if you develop hyperglycemia during that particular stressor, even if it disappears um, following gestational diabetes, then down the track, you're, you're, we know that you are at increased risk of developing diabetes proper. And so in the same way, if you experience COVID-19 and or are treated with dexamethasone and you experience transient hyperglycemia that uh, goes away at the end of that illness, at the end of that course of treatment, uh, that tells us something about your propensity to insulin resistance and your uh, pancreas's ability to withstand a stressor and tells us that you're probably more likely to go on to develop frank diabetes, type 2 diabetes, that is, um, in future. Whether people are more likely to develop type 3 diabetes, type 3C diabetes, that is, because of a direct um, toxic inflammatory necrotic effect on the pancreas um, of COVID-19 is, is sort of yet to be seen. There have been some case studies um, suggesting antibody-positive diabetes following COVID-19, but these have been so few and far between for the, the great numbers of people who have been infected with COVID-19 that it's probably not a, a major factor. The fall is coming, I can feel it The breeze brings goosebumps to my skin Tonight the whiskey feels stronger Gasoline on hidden desires So Many thanks to Raul Barmanray, John Wentworth, Devan Kavat, and Mohammed Ashraf Islam for taking the time to record this podcast. Members of the RACP have free access to the Internal Medicine Journal, the Journal of Paediatrics and Child Development, and the Occupational Health Journal. Just follow the links from racp.edu.au slash fellows slash resources slash journals. And remember that reading or writing academic articles, even listening to podcasts, can all be counted towards your learning for continuing professional development. There's a pre-filled link to my CPD at each of the podcast episode pages. And you'll get an email from the college at the start of the year about many more online resources tailored to all of the CPD categories. Keep an eye out for that and please reach out if you have any questions. The best email for that is mycpd at racp.edu.au. I'm Mika Cavazzini and this episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and their ongoing connection to sea and country. Thank you for listening.